we actually need to eat in to our remaining ecological budget because we have to use some of it up, building the infrastructure that we need to have in place in order to move to a sustainable economy. Windmills and solar panels don't come from nowhere. They have to be manufactured. And that involves using resources today. But none of this is limited by our ability to pay for it. The money is not the issue. It's the real resources that are the issue. And of course, those real resources include, most importantly, the ecological resources on which we, we depend. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Stephen Hale. Stephen is an economist and a lecturer at Modern Money Lab, the first and only department in the world offering master's courses based around modern monetary theory, or MMT as it's known. Stephen joins me to explain MMT, how the typical understanding of our monetary system, including spending taxpayers' money, running deficits, and currency issuance are very, very far from the reality of our monetary systems around the world for nations that issue their own currency. Stephen begins by explaining some of the myths peddled by economists and politicians alike, such as, we can't afford a green transition, or we can't tax billionaires, or we can't shut that coal mine down because we can't lose its revenue. He explains that nations that issue their own currency, like the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, China, have a monetary sovereignty that allows them not just to run a deficit, but means that they should be in deficit in order to secure the private sector. He explains how our taxes are not being spent, but rather currency that is collected as tax is destroyed. That's a better way to think of it. He explains how taxes were used to initially rope people into monetary systems, that governments need us to need their currency rather than needing our money. He explains the relationship between currencies, prices and inflation with regards to current monetary policy and a green transition. He explains how developing nations are roped into depending on foreign currencies, the impact that has on their development, on their own sovereignty, be it energy, food or monetary. He anchors MMT in an understanding of real resources, i.e. materials, skills, labor, and explains that if governments want to spend, as we saw during the pandemic, all they have to do is pass bills through Parliament. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be on, Rachel. Thanks for asking. So my first question for you is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? I think, you know, just as well as I do, um, why the world is in, in crisis, we 
have always had, we continue to have an economic system which is based on perpetual expansion, um, principally, of course, for the last 150 years anyway, exploiting fossil fuels, where the success or failure of governments, economic policies, uh, um, changing governments and elections, whether that happens or not, depends as much as anything else on whether something called real GDP is increasing or not, or how quickly it's increasing over time. So everything is based on expanding the scale of our economic activity, which continues to have the effect of uh, increasing our ecological footprint on the planet. And that didn't matter so much a hundred years ago, because although our activities could have uh, devastating ecological consequences in local areas of, of the planet, um, it's not until the last 50 years that our footprint has been so big that we're eating into our global natural capital, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, and um, that despite 30 odd years of um, IPCC reports and conferences of the parties continues to be the case. And I know that you, you've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast, so lots of people have explained about the planetary boundaries and how we are outside now, at least six and soon probably eight of the nine planetary boundaries, which Jacob Brockstrom and Will Steffen and others identified about 15 years ago. Or if you want to use the approach of the Global Footprint Network, where they um, basically aggregate our impact on the, on the planet to a single statistic, um, we've been using up more than one Earth's worth of resources, creating more than one Earth's worth of, of waste for about 55 years now. Uh, and uh, at the moment, we, we're we not really taking seriously um, the need to, to, to um, stop doing that because the discussion is all about green growth. It's about decarbonising economic growth and going on as before Environmental economists talk about um, optimal carbon taxes or using emissions trading schemes to get the right price for a tonne of uh, carbon dioxide. And if that happens, then um, what we consume will change. Patterns of production will change. Technology will evolve over time. And we'll be able to continue growing as before, ever and ever and ever, or forever and ever and ever. And um, as ecological economists have been saying for many years, not that I classify myself as one of those but um, that that's just not realistic it's not going to happen um, we actually have to start thinking particularly in the global north about adequacy rather than rather than growth about how we distribute um, mm. what it is we produce and how that contributes to human well-being rather than um, feeding a psychology where everybody is supposed to be clamoring for more and more and more as, as the years go by. Great. So that, that's so, why we're in crisis. <laughs> that's why the world is in crisis and yeah. moving to an economic system that certainly in the global north um, is rooted in adequacy rather than growth would be part of the solution. Um, well, yes, I think that's, that's obvious to anyone who takes this seriously. So I'm sure it's obvious to you. Um, actually, going about doing that is a, is a difficult thing to do because we've had one version or another of the system we live with now um, probably for 500 years, but we've had a, a particularly destructive version of it for the last 40 to 50 years. And for many people, they've 
never yet been exposed or barely been exposed to anything except the conventional narrative where the economy has to keep growing over time, otherwise there'll be a recession, otherwise there'll be rising unemployment and politicians, even green politicians, you know, even people that leaders of the Green Party in many countries, um, don't feel able to stand up and say, actually, we've got a plan for a post-growth society mm. or perhaps even a degrowth society. It's not just about moving towards renewables, but when you look at the practicalities of that, then in the global north, we probably have to reduce our energy consumption. Um, if we're going to live sustainably and if we're going to create um, ecological space for the many countries, the majority of countries around the world where people's basic needs are still not being met, um, to, to grow and have a fairer share of, um, of the world's resources. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me then, how does... Let's get on to MMT. How does modern monetary theory fit into this? Because it's a topic that's come up a lot on the show. Um, haven't yet had an MMT expert on. And I was actually, funnily enough, uh, talking about it yesterday. I was on the Eurostar and <laughs> I happened to sit next to three South Africans who'd been pulling the rugby <laughs> around <All right>. France. <laughs> and that wasn't the right accent. <laughs> and, um, well, I can't do it either. I come out of New Zealand <laughs> if I try and do South Africa, which is deeply insulting to both countries. So I won't <laughs> try. Yeah, find that out yesterday too. Um, and we got onto the topic of absolutely everything. I mean, it was so wide-ranging from the ecological crisis to Andrew Tate. And at one point when I was talking about, you know, the things that need to change, one guy was like, yeah, but how are you going to fund it? How are you going to fund it? And I was like, well, there's this thing called MMT. And then I had to stop because I was like, I know, <laughs> I know the principles, but I don't know how it works. So I'm very grateful to be speaking to you the following day. Well, that, it's, it's <laughs> nice that you should ask me. I'm I am uh, what Friedrich Hayek used to call a uh, second-hand dealer in ideas. So I'm not one of the origina originators of MMT. There is a movie that's coming out in the next month initially in the US, but I'm sure will spread around the world, called Finding the Money, which um, features uh, the people that have developed modern monetary theory, people like Stephanie Kelton and Warren Mosler and, and Randall Ray um, and others. Um, they transform my view of money and finance and macroeconomics. I, in the 80s and 90s, I have to confess that I trained lots of bankers in London. I was a mainstream or neoclassical um, economist, and it took me a long time to accept that my view of the way that monetary systems work um, uh, was wrong, and I needed to, to rethink it. MMT was important there. Uh, it's about the same time, actually, that I started to take uh, ecological issues seriously and started to question that side of things um, as well. Since then, for the last 10 to 15 years, I've spent my time um, talking to uh, ecologists about money and saying uh, we're not going to shift away from the use of some kind of monetary system in the future, so you need to understand how monetary systems work, otherwise you're not going to be able to achieve uh, what you want to achieve, and you'll fall for fallacies like we can't afford to uh, to have a, a rapid transition to renewables, or, or you'll fall for uh, other myths like we need to keep the coal mines open in countries like Australia so we can tax the coal billionaires to pay for all the things we need, both of which are complete myths, utter nonsense, but if you have a conventional view 
of of money, then then you're going to fall for those myths. And then at the same time, modern monetary theory, when it was first developed in the 1990s, I guess it's the first serious challenge to mainstream macroeconomics for 70 years. Uh, it looked to a lot of people like just a, a more efficient way of growing the economy faster, um, which <laughs> is not something that I would be all that interested in if that's what it was. Um, that isn't what it is. MMT is like an instruction manual for how to use monetary systems and um, for explaining that governments in some countries have much more space when it comes to acting or more ability to to act than, than in others, depending on, on, on the nature of the monetary system. Uh, ecological economics or having an ecological perspective, um, if we were talking about MMT being a, a it's not a good analogy. Stephanie used it recently. Uh, being an instruction manual for a car, then ecological economics <laughs> tells you where you should be driving the car, what direction we need to be going in. Uh, the most important thing about MMT, the most important thing about um, money that most people misunderstand or are unaware of is the distinction between a currency issuer and a currency user. So you and I and every business we might encounter and uh, not-for-profit organisations, and even governments that don't issue their own currency. They're all currency users. Um, before we can spend dollars or euros or pounds, we have to go and get them. First, we have to earn the money, uh, or we can borrow it. But if we borrow it, we've got to pay it back later. We might get into difficulty. We might end up going bankrupt as a result of that. Uh, that's true. That's true of you and me, but it's not true of governments that are currency issuers and that collect taxes that people have to pay using the currencies that those governments have issued. So, so it's not true that they have to pay back the money that they issue? Oh, absolutely not. The US government has been in deficit almost every year since 1776. Now, assuming we could possibly live that long, you and I wouldn't be able to do that. We wouldn't be able to borrow every year. The British government has been in deficit um, since the Bank of England was founded in 1694 many, many more times than it's been in surplus. Um, if you look at the average of the 40 e economies that the IMF classifies as advanced economies, uh, every year going back into the past for as long as you like, on average they run deficits. They, what does that mean? They spend more than they raise in taxes and, and other payments to, to governments. And actually, that's necessary most of the time because the private sector, generally speaking, wants to net save. If the private sector wants to net save, let's say we're talking about the US private sector wants to accumulate more dollars, well, the only place they can get those dollars from is the federal government. So the government deficit spends, creating the dollars which allows the private sector to net save and have what we call secure um, balance sheets. Uh, if you don't understand that, if you've got governments that pursue surpluses like the Australian government did in the early 2000s, you either drive the economy into a recession, and although I'm in favour of planned degrowth over the next couple of decades, that's not the same thing as an unplanned uh, recession. Or what actually happened in Australia in the early 2000s, you get a rapid accumulation of debt in the private sector. 
In Australia in the early 1990s, we had a very low level of household debt compared to other high-income countries. Uh, by 2010 or 2012, we had the world's second highest household debt to GDP ratio because if the government's going to run a surplus, then somebody else has to run a deficit because in every monetary system, this is always true, deficits and surpluses cancel out. Just as for every uh, lender, there has to be a borrower. For every surplus in the monetary system, there has to be a deficit. And if you're not talking about countries that have large, persistent balance of payments surpluses, like Norway, where the rest of the world is, is in deficit on your monetary system, then that means if, uh, if the private sector wants to habitually be in surplus to net save, then the only way to facilitate that is for governments to run deficits. And that will happen in the future as in the past. And that's not a problem because, of course, the government issues the currency. Now, what the government needs is not your money. The government needs you to need its money so that it can spend its money into circulation. So if you want to set up a monetary system, and this was well understood in Victorian England as they conquered country after country in Africa, introduced their currency into these countries, if you, uh, for example, are invading Ghana and you want people in Ghana to come and work for you without actually enslaving them all, then what you do is you introduce a hut tax, um, a tax liability. You say to people, if you don't want us to demolish your hut, lock you in prison, you've got to pay us a tax. You're going to have to pay us a tax using these coins with Queen Victoria's head on. Oh, you don't have any coins with Queen Victoria's head on. Well, come and work for us. We'll pay you using some coins with Queen Victoria's head on, and you can pay some of them back to us in, in, in taxation. Or if you don't want to work for us, um, sell some goods or services to other people who do work for us, and you'll get the currency by doing that, and then you'll be able to pay your taxes. That is how you introduce a currency. You start off by, introducing, by, by imposing a tax liability on people with the power of the state behind you, that creates a demand for your currency, and you can then spend the currency into circulation. If you spend more into circulation than you tax out, which is what normally happens, well, you'll be running a deficit. You can either leave the cash in the system, or if you want to, for reasons to do with interest rate management, which we're not going to be here all, all night, so let's not worry about those reasons. If you want to, you can auction some government bonds, which will give people a nice rate of interest. That wasn't necessary to pay for your spending. You're the currency issuer. And it's actually to do with monetary policy and interest rate management. It's not really to do with financing uh, the government. You can, of course, later on decide to introduce some uh, uh, arbitrary rules to restrict your freedom, like the debt ceiling in the US. But they're not an intrinsic part of the monetary system. They're something which uh, Parliament or Congress has introduced and which it could just as easily scrap. So that's how monetary systems work. Now, why is that important if you are an ecological economist? It's important because what um, MMT says is that particularly for governments that don't promise to convert their currency into gold or into foreign currency or into anything else that they could run out of at a fixed rate, and which don't have any significant foreign currency denominated debt because, of course, you can create your own currency. You can't create US dollars if you borrow those, if you're not the US government. 
um, then you have no purely financial constraints, but you still have what we call real constraints. You are limited by the productive capacity of your economy. So your ability to transition to renewables depends on whether you've got the materials, the skills, the technology, the institutional capacity to go about doing that. If you don't, then, and if you can't import them, then at the moment you're either going to have to build up that capacity or if you, if you try to go ahead uh, too quickly with those investments and you're competing with the private sector for um, skills or um, technology which is in short supply, it could be inflationary. So planning for a transition is about planning for the use of real resources to build the infrastructure of a post-growth economy which is going to allow you in time to move back within planetary boundaries. You're going to have to manage inflation risk while you do this. That might include raising taxes, but you won't be raising taxes to literally pay for government spending. That's not how it works. Actually, you spend the money into circulation before you tax some of it away. Again, it's not the taxation that funds the spending. You have to spend euros into the system or pounds into the system or dollars into the system before you can tax some of them away. It's about reducing the purchasing power or some people within the private sector to create room within the productive capacity of the economy to allow for the necessary public investments which you have to undertake in order to achieve your objectives. That, that's basically uh, the story. So it's a, oh, okay, I need some help just with that last bit. <laughs> yes. It's about reducing power in the private economy. If there's too much spending, there'll be inflation. And people don't like inflation. I mean, it's not the end of the world when the inflation rate goes up a little bit and there's, there's, there's not really any great theoretical reason why uh, governments in recent decades have tended to go for an inflation target of 2% or below, which lots of governments have. They just sort of ended up there in the early 1990s. There's nothing particularly special about 2% inflation as opposed to 5 or 6% inflation. But if we don't want inflation to go out of control, then we can't have total spending uh, within our economy going out of control because we have limited productive capacity. So if there's too much spending, then we'll all be competing for scarce resources and that will drive the prices of those scarce resources up. So in order to avoid um, that uh, eventuating, then if you are talking about, as we are, uh, significantly ramping up public investment in the years to come as we establish the infrastructure of a post-growth society with universal public services, including excellent public transport, with uh, uh, renewable energy and storage, replacing fossil fuels and everything else um, that we need to do. Then we need some kind of, you can call them pay-fors if you like, but why am I taxing, uh, why am I um, raising uh, perhaps wealth taxes on rich people? Although that in, in itself won't cut back on total spending very much, but it, it would create a more even distribution of income and wealth and make what we're doing more socially acceptable. Um, why am I introducing a series of ecological taxes? Well, in part, it's to take spending power out of the private sector to make room within the productive capacity of the economy for the government to invest without 
pushing the economy through its inflation barrier. Um, but more taxes shouldn't be the first thing you think about. There are other ways of creating the space in the economy to allow for the investments we need to make. And those other ways might include actually phasing out some activities which don't contribute towards well-being at the moment in the economy. But it can also include, and indeed it ought to include, much closer regulation of private banks if we're still going to have private banks. There used to be, until the 1970s in many countries, uh, um, uh, a series of uh, a variety of credit controls. So the amount of lending banks did wasn't just limited by finding creditworthy uh, people to lend to and by the interest rate, the price of money. Um, it was limited by central banks or banking regulators telling banks how much they were allowed to lend, how much they could expand their lending and in what areas they could expand their lending. And we ought to have quantitative credit regulation now uh, um, influencing the direction in which banks create credit over time and limiting the total amount of credit creation. Again, to make space to allow for the public investments we need to build the future that we want to see. Now, the whole point is, and I appreciate it's not simple to take in at first, at first listen, the whole point is we don't need the money of rich people to pay for things. You can close down the coal mines and the coal billionaire not be a coal billionaire anymore. And the fact that the coal billionaire isn't a coal billionaire anymore and isn't paying you taxes doesn't prevent you, it doesn't stop you from funding the investments that you need to make to build the future that you want to see. Because it isn't collect the taxes or borrow the money before you spend. If you are a government, which is a currency issuer, and which is also what we sometimes call a monetary sovereign, where you don't have the foreign currency debt and you're not on a gold standard. Uh, instead, you spend, if you're the US government, dollars into the monetary system. Some of those dollars you tax away again. That created a demand for your currency in the first place, those tax liabilities. But the macroeconomic role of taxation is beyond that is to limit the spending power of the private sector so that there's room for the government to spend. Uh, and as I said, you can, you can issue saving certificates and call them treasury bonds if you want to provide those in the private sector that are holding the dollars that you've spent into the system and not taxed back out again with an interest rate on their savings. I'm not myself in favour of doing that. I would have a zero interest rate policy. Um, I don't think interest rates are an effective way of controlling inflationary pressures in the economy. Instead, when you jack interest rates up, it has a bad impact on the distribution of income because the people who receive those interest payments tend to be wealthy people and the people that are making those interest payments tend to be less wealthy people. Mm -hmm. And in some circumstances, and the US is like this at the moment, um, increasing interest rates can actually boost uh, spending in the private sector rather than cut it back. The US government has a lot of debt and um, the, uh, the US government deficit has been rising in recent months. And the main reason it's been rising is because uh, US interest rates have been rising. So the US government has been paying more interest to those people in the private sector that are holding its debt on its treasury bonds. Um, and that 
can act as a stimulus. It, it's People imagine that uh, central banks managing interest rates is like having something like a, an accelerator or a brake, something really predictable. If inflation goes up a bit and you want to slow down demand, you jack interest rates up a bit, it magically brings spending under control and puts downward pressure on, 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 on uh, interest rates. It's not. Uh, the, the link between interest rates and total spending in the economy and inflation is a complex one, complex and multifaceted one. In Australia, we have less um, government debt than in the US. In Australia, mortgages at variable interest rates, whereas in the US, there are fixed interest rates. In Australia, when the central bank puts interest rates up, it's more likely to have a downward uh, uh, impact on total spending in the economy than in the US because our, our monetary systems, our balance sheets are different. There isn't a simple relationship there. So what I am saying is that we ought to move away from managing inflation by jacking interest rates up or down. We should be limiting the total amount of credit creation by banks through regulation, not through the use of the market mechanism, which is inherently uh, um, regressive. Um, and that credit regulation should play an important role as we are engaging in large-scale deficit spending to facilitate the investments we need, to build the infrastructure we need, to get to the point where we say, all right, we are now moving to a post-growth economy. We are going to ensure that people have a good quality of life, people have uh, economic security, there are universal public services. There would be, if I was in charge, a federal job guarantee where people would have the opportunity, if they're involuntarily unemployed, to do work which contributed to um, individuals locally or society or the environment. Um, and having done all that, I would say that as productivity continues to improve over time, then we should be moving to shorter working weeks, not longer ones. And we should be moving to a shorter working life, not a longer one as well. That's what should happen right. in the future as technology advances. But okay. we're a million miles away from that. <laughs> okay, so there are bits of this I don't quite understand. Um, the That thing, like why, A... Why do we want to limit private sector spending? And then one big stupid question, why don't governments just spend everything necessary in order to force the, the, a rapid transition? Okay, well, uh, in a sense, they're the same question in that we have a limited right. amount of labour and a limited amount of skills and limited capital equipment and technology and limited resources. So if we were to try to spend without limit, then that would just cause prices to accelerate upwards. Inflation would go out of control. And, and yes, you can create hyperinflation if you try to go down that route. So our ability to um, produce the goods and services we need is limited by our productive capacity. And that means mm. if you get to full employment, then if at full employment... Um, you want to increase government investment further, then you need to create space in the economy to allow that to be possible. You need to free up real resources. 
in order to allow that to be possible. And that's where you might use, for example, qualitative credit regulation to bring that about. Or you might, um, you might have to put taxes up in order to bring that about. Or if you're spending more, if the government's spending more in one area, it might need to spend less uh, in another. We can think of some areas we might like less spending. If I could give the obvious um, example, like military spending, although maybe <laughs> maybe uh -huh. uh, that's uh, maybe that's just being a bit facetious there. But yes, we can't spend limitless amounts on everything. Or we could try, but the whole system would break down. And if it didn't, then we'd be with the, uh, we'd be expanding the economy very rapidly anyway, and you'd need to turn back on all the coal-fired power stations again, so it wouldn't be a great idea. Okay. But <laughs> what if we... Because it's the thing, if you did shut down um, all the coal-fired power stations, for example, like rapidly transition them out, you would then have all of those resources, like that labour, those skill sets. Absolutely. So I'm yeah I'm not I'm not advocating for big increases in taxation. I'm simply saying that if you want to move very quickly, and inflation if, if inflation becomes an issue, you need to think about what's causing the inflation. It hasn't been too much spending in the last couple of years. It's been going through the four horses of the apocalypse, and then uh, uh, some uh, monopolists or quasi monopolists taking advantage of the upward pressure on the price level to build profit margins as much as anything else. Um, research by the Bank of England and the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve and the RBA in Australia, even as they've been increasing interest rates and telling us they needed to rein back on, on, on spending, their research has been telling them that uh, the problems have been on the supply side. And that's obvious. I mean, it's been, uh, first of all, directly, later on indirectly, it's been uh, supply chains, then uh, food prices and energy prices, and that's been quite, very much influenced by the Ukraine war. That, that's, uh, but I put pressure on the price level, and of course, if you're in the UK, which I know you're not at the moment, then um, the disruption of Brexit added to that too. It wasn't too much spending in itself. But if you wanted to make a very rapid transition, then you could come up against the full employment ceiling of the economy, and it could be inflationary, and you then need to work out how you're going to create the space the, what what MNT tells you is it's not about finding the money. It's about freeing up the real resources that you need. That's where the insight comes in. And uh, my first instinct is not to raise taxes overall. It's to look for what we call non-fiscal pay-fors. And you mentioned one of them, which is uh, um, phasing in some activities. Uh, um, but, of course, you can't phase out fossil fuels until you've got the renewable energy infrastructure in place to replace those fossil fuels. So it is, it's, it's not a, a simple problem, um, but it is... Um, what's the word? Um, empowering to know that the issue is not running out of money. That's not how the monetary system works. We know it's not how the monetary system works. I mean, if I was just to, uh, not that your um, listeners will want me to talk too much about Australia, but uh, <laughs> we, we have sort of been through a natural experiment in Australia and a number of other countries during the pandemic. I just happened to know about Australia in March 2020. Um, 
our government, our federal government, had virtually nothing in the spreadsheet cell that they refer to as their bank account at the Reserve Bank of Australia, the central bank that they own anyway. And yet they engaged in hundreds of billions of dollars of spending over the next couple of years. Now, where did those hundreds of billions of dollars come from? They didn't come from the private sector because you can only lend to the Australian, lend in inverted commas, you can only lend Australian dollars to the Australian government by purchasing its treasury bonds, either directly if you're a bank or indirectly if you're one of the bank's customers, using bank reserve account balances at the central bank. And there was nothing in those balances either. And it's next to nothing in the system. In order to facilitate the deficit spending that the Australian government engaged in, it was over $300 billion over the next couple of years, those dollars had to be created. And this just illustrates something which I often like to say to people, which is factually true. No mainstream economists can disagree with you about this because you can then just look at how things work with them step by step. Every dollar the Australian government spends, every dollar the US federal government spends, every pound the British government spends, just to take some examples um, of of what we regard as monetary sovereign economies. It's a little bit more complicated in the Eurozone, but it's basically the same. Every euro that the German federal government spends is a new unit of currency. When the federal government spends in the US dollars into the monetary system, those dollars are new dollars. They are the birth of a dollar. When you pay your taxes, it's lovely to feel that you're paying for something. And they even, you know, in lots of countries, they send you a, a nice pie chart which tells you how much, how much of your taxes goes to the health system or education, and it makes you feel good. But actually, that's not what happens. And in Australia, every dollar that I pay in taxes to the federal government is effectively thrown in the electronic dustbin. Federal taxes destroy currency. Spending by the currency issued government creates currency. When the government spends, they create new units of currency. When in the UK, the UK government spends, every pound they spend adds a pound to every official measure of the money supply in the UK. There are numbers on spreadsheets at the Bank of England, but they don't count. The government's balance in inverted commas at its central bank doesn't count as part of the official money supply in the UK. So every time the UK government spends a pound, the money supply goes up by a pound. Every, every pound of taxes that's paid to the UK government simply deletes a pound from the money supply. The spending comes first. Remember, the taxes come later. It's the other way around to how most people think. Once you understand this, it will change your view. I'm not talking to you as an individual. I mean, people listening. Mm -hmm. It will change your view about the appropriate role for the national government to play within the monetary system, within the economy forever. And you'll never change back because it's based on a factual description of how the monetary system actually works instead of this notion people carry around in their heads that the government is like a household, which it isn't. So why tax anyone anymore like now that we've all been roped into a more 
complex monetary system, um, why are we still getting taxed? Uh, basically, for the reason I said before, which you you didn't like, but I'll say it again, which is that if you just keep spending, and we know this too, because Zimbabwe tried this a few years ago, if you keep spending, 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 and you don't tax any of it back, then eventually um, the spending power in the system is greater than the ability of the system to supply goods and services. There are shortages and promises get driven up faster and faster. Right. Okay. Okay, that, that's finally clicked for me. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think what's so interesting about this is that it really pegs um, the economy to biophysical reality, which is one of the main um, criticisms, obviously, of neoclassical e economics. But the fact that it is about sort of available genuine resources like materials, like labour, skills. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, Stephanie Kelton, when she does talks about the Green New Deal, or at least I saw her do this once, and um, she likes to talk about a beaver uh, building a, a home on a river bank. Uh, and, um, and she play, plays on the word bank there, but... Um, she makes the point as you know it doesn't have to go to an actual bank to raise money to, to do it. what what it's using is real resources mm -hmm. to build something and that's what the economy is all about in the end too of course we need a monetary system in order to organize ourselves but the problem of achieving whatever we want to achieve in the next few years or the next generation economically is about the use of real resources and of course those real resources um, uh, include, most importantly, the ecological resources uh, on which we, we depend. Our economy, as we know, is a wholly owned subsidiary of our biosphere. Uh, we draw renewable resources and non-renewable resources from that biosphere. And we use energy, most of which directly or indirectly comes from outside that biosphere because it's solar energy one way or another even fossil fuels were solar energy once we transform these resources to produce things which give us use value which then eventually or if we're talking about consumables sometimes in a linear economy very quickly become waste um, our biosphere as long as we work we don't overwhelm its waste sinks can process that waste and the problem that we have, of course, is that we, first of all, uh, are overwhelming our waste sinks at the moment. But then secondly, um, in some respects anyway, we are using renewable resources more quickly they can be renewed. And we're using some of our non-renewables more quickly than we can develop renewable alternatives. That's why we need to scale back our, our, our economic activity in the future. But for the moment... Um, we should be, uh, if we're going to achieve this as quickly as we need to, for the moment, we actually need to eat in to our remaining um, ecological budget because we have to use some of it up, building the infrastructure that we need to have in place in order to move to a sustainable economy. Um, windmills and solar panels don't come from nowhere. They have to be manufactured. And that involves using resources today. But none of this is limited by our ability to pay for it. The money is not the issue. 
It's the real resources that are the issue. And if anybody ever tells you on a train, how are we going to pay for uh, a transition to renewables? The same way we pay for anything. How do currency issuing, tax collecting governments pay for things? They pass bills through parliament. What funds government spending? A measure going through parliament or Congress funds government spending. Um, the problem that Liz Truss had with her insane plans a couple of years ago <laughs> was that she didn't have support in Parliament. If she'd had her colleagues solidly behind her with a big majority, she could have done. It wouldn't have been a great idea. It would have it would have held back um, um, even further, uh, or it would have done even more ecological damage in the UK, and it would have driven an even more unequal society. Um, but um, the problem was a lack of parliamentary support. So uh, how do you fund government spending? Well, you know, you have to win an election and pass bills through Parliament. Then it's funded. Mm. Can you run out of your own currency? No. Is it just me saying this? No, people can go online on and YouTube and watch Alan Greenspan, who for years was the very right-wing uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, saying exactly this. Mm. Um, what's the... Uh, uh, what else could people look up? Well, just look up the US government's budget balance. Um, going back over the last century or more, they've always been in deficit. Is that a problem? No. Um, as long as they don't uh, do something crazy like refuse to extend their debt ceiling. Do other countries have a debt ceiling? Uh, nowhere has a debt ceiling like the US. There's one or two countries like I think Denmark and the Netherlands have something along those lines. But for the most part, no. And the debt ceiling in the US is a purely political measure that was introduced for political reasons after the First World War and they've never got round to scrapping. But again, if you're the president and you've got support in both houses of Congress, it's never a problem to increase the debt ceiling. They've done that almost every year for the last hundred years. Mm, okay. Can you speak to the US dollar hegemony and the fact that so much around the world is paid for in US dollars and the impact of that on monetary systems around the world? I can say that you don't need to be the US to have what we call a high degree of monetary sovereignty. Australia, where I live, has a high degree of monetary sovereignty. Australia is not the global monetary hegemon. Uh, the important thing is that you issue a currency, you collect taxes in that currency, you don't fix the currency to gold or any foreign currency at a fixed rate, and you don't have any significant foreign currency denominated debts. Now, the, uh, it's complicated how, gov how governments around the world got into this, th these circumstances. And much of it has happened since 1980. It's a very long story that you'd need to talk to someone like Jason Hickel or Fadil Kaboob about. <laughs> but it is certainly true that for very many governments around the world, they have a difficult set of circumstances because they have been forced to or hoodwinked into accumulating a lot of US dollar-denominated debt. Mm -hmm. If you have a lot of US dollar denominated debt as a government, well, 
You issue your own currency, but you don't issue the US dollar. You can run out of US dollars. You can go insolvent just like anybody else can. And um, if you've also got a lot of US dollar denominated debt in the private sector, and if you are dependent on importing necessities like food, where perhaps you were once self-sufficient in food, energy, where if you are, let's say, an African economy, we would hope in the future you'll be self-sufficient because of solar energy, but you're not at the moment. There's very little solar energy across most of Africa, bizarrely. At the moment, most of the continent is still uh, dependent on imported oil. Even Nigeria, that's an oil exporter, imports processed oil. I mean, it's just... Yeah, um, it's when you're under these circumstances, then um, you have a fear of floating. You don't want to float your currency because if you float your currency rather than trying to defend a fixed exchange rate and your currency depreciates and these essential imports are priced in US dollars, in terms of your own currency, the price of these essential imports will go through the roof and that's got, that will have a major impact on, on living standards, particularly people at the bottom who are already struggling to survive and on social and political instability. It's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult to deal with this issue. Monetary sovereignty is something that you need to build over time, and that involves thinking about, yes, real goods again. So it involves uh, it moving towards uh, uh, energy sovereignty and food sovereignty. Uh, it involves somehow over time reducing the US dollar debt the, um, the, the government and the private sector is carrying, whether we're talking about debt forgiveness or whether we're talking about default or whatever we're talking about. Um, so, uh, yes, all this is related, I suppose, to US dollar hegemony. Does it, from the US point of view, does it place the US in an absolutely unique position? I suppose to an extent because monetary sovereignty is a continuum and the US is certainly at one end of it. But countries like Australia and Japan and Britain and certainly the Eurozone collectively and even smaller economies like New Zealand and Canada that have those characteristics as their monetary system was describing before don't have that US dollar debt, don't have fixed exchange rates. Um, they have the same kind of fiscal space that the US does. Yeah. It is important that the US continues to run trade deficits while we have the system we have at the moment. Because while we have the system we have at the moment, there are many countries around the world that are desperately looking for US dollars in order to fend off insolvency and try and defend their fixed exchange rates and not end up being forced back into the arms of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and uh, being forced to uh, go even further down the path of austerity and privatisations and privileging uh, 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 Global North multinationals and everything else that goes mm -hmm. with digging an even deeper hole for themselves. And uh, how are they going to get those US dollars? Well, outside of reparations... The only way they're going to get those US dollars 
without welcoming investments from U.S. multinationals, without um, taking on board more U.S. dollar debt than they've already got, is to earn those U.S. dollars by running trade surpluses against the U.S. So U.S. trade deficits that certainly benefit the U.S. The U.S. is getting to consume goods and services which they're not producing. It won't feel that way, mind you, of course, if you are a working-class person in the U.S. who feels that you've been undercut because multinationals have moved your jobs elsewhere in the world where wages are lower, labour standards, environmental standards are lower. But from the point of view of the U.S. as a whole, U.S. trade deficits, which have been endemic for decades now, mean that Americans get to consume things they don't produce. Uh, and the rest of the world gets U.S. dollars, which it is still the case, despite you know, um, um, despite recent commentary that the U.S. dollar is comfortably the world's dominant um, global reserve currency, and and most governments around the world feel that they need to get those reserves in order to defend their fixed exchange rate and fend off insolvency. Now, this is not the future that we want to see happening. And um, uh, one of my modern monetary theory colleagues, uh, the brilliant Fadel Kaboob, who is himself Tunisian, has moved for a couple of years uh, into Africa. He was living for a while in Addis Ababa. I'm not sure where he's living now. Uh, But he is playing a major role in trying to develop more solidarity amongst African governments when it comes to negotiating with the global north about all sorts of issues, including trade policy, fair trade, including uh, including debt forgiveness in some cases, uh, including uh, uh, compensation relating to the effects of climate change, and also including developing more um, trade relationships between African countries rather than having African economies trapped still in the same system they were in during colonial times, where they're basically somewhere where you get uh, cheap minerals or cheap cash crops or cheap labour in a low-value-added part of manufacturing. And so they're locked into relative underdevelopment and a perpetual struggle against US dollar debt and insolvency. But it doesn't matter how parlous your situation is um, in in one respect. Fadel and modern monetary theory economists in general would say uh, you can always use those real resources which you possess to try to um, improve people's well-being and to develop monetary sovereignty over time. So one of the ideas that Fadel pushes is, for example, using a job guarantee in order to try to move back towards food self-sufficiency. Yeah. That sort of thing. It's more difficult to deal with uh, energy sovereignty because, generally speaking, there you've got to import uh, technology if you don't have the technology at the moment or the resources. But, of course, Africa, um, like where I live in Australia, uh, has abundant renewable energy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, there again, um, 
those same economies, they should be perhaps taking a leaf out of the OPEC book from the 1970s. And Europe has virtually none of the minerals in Indian modern economy. Mm-hmm. They all come from Africa. Mm-hmm. So how come Europe has all the bargaining power through the and Europe and North America through our uh, global uh, multilateral bodies like the World Trade Organization and the African economies have none? That might change in the future. None of this really has got much directly to do with money. <laughs> Doesn't it just a lot to do with power? Yes. Power and relationships. Um, Gosh, I've taken so many notes. Um, how interesting. Okay, so essentially... Um, our monetary system is misunderstood even by the people who use it and it's um, mostly used in order to, well, okay, I'm going to say this, but our monetary system, the way that it's set up and the way that it's spoken about is essentially hiding the fact that a lot of the global north now no longer has access to those real resources that it needs in order to function as well. Um, yeah, I mean, if we were talking about the monetary system, the uh, I just would, uh, to have a simple message to leave you with um we know what sort of transitions we want to make in the future um where are you going to find the us dollars from where are you going to find the euros from where are you going to find the pounds from where are we going to find the australian dollars from um we just got been through a natural uh, experiment which was the pandemic and we discovered during the pandemic there's no problem at all finding the money if you are a currency issuing government with a high degree of monetary sovereignty. A high degree of monetary sovereignty means you have a floating currency. Ideally, you've got a resilient enough economy so that if the current if the exchange rate fluctuates a little bit, it's not catastrophic. And you don't have any significant foreign currency denominated debt. At the moment, this is not true of many countries around the world for the reasons that we've been talking about, but it is true of those rich countries in the global north. And if we're talking in the future about big reparations, or if we're talking about the global north, transferring real resources and transferring the US dollars to pay for those real resources to the global south, as we transition to a sustainable, just future economy, then the problem is a political one. People like you and me need to be in power if we were in power, we could find the money. You just need to pass the bills through Parliament. Uh, the way our monetary systems work, they, our governments are not like households. They are currency issuers. There's not a problem with finding the money. The problem then will always be dealing with um, the risk of inflation. If our demands on real productive resources were greater than the availability of those real productive resources. But the problem is not finding the money. It's never finding the money. And if if people could stop talking about taxpayers' money, it's not the taxpayers' money. It's the government's money. But the government is, of course, there to represent the interests of the public. So the best way of talking about money is to call it public money. Never call it taxpayers' money. Your taxes don't pay for anything. The government doesn't need your money. The government needs you to need its money. That's why there's a tax system. 
if we were all to transition to using cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, as long as, let's say, the British government still calculated your tax liabilities in pounds and made you pay your taxes in pounds, there would still be a demand for the pound. Those are all facts about the monetary system. Thank you so much. Thank That's you right. so, so, so much. Um, whew, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sit with this. Um, yeah, sorry. Is, I've wandered all over the place. No, no, so, no, no, yeah, no. It's, it's, it's inordinately helpful. There's just, there's just a lot of words in it uh, for somebody yeah. that uh, is not okay with money systems. Um, my final question for you is who would you like to platform? Who would I like to platform? They probably don't need me to platform them. But um, obviously Stephanie Kelton, author of The Deficit Myth and featuring in the new movie Finding the Money. Obviously Jason Hickel, author of Less is More, um, leader of the degrowth, one of the leaders of the degrowth movement and recently um, one of the speakers at um, a big event in the European Parliament relating to degrowth, obviously Kate Raworth. Um, mm -hmm. uh, um, author of Donut Economics and um, let me just mention Fadel Kaboub the Tunisian modern monetary theory and ecological economist who, have you ever spoken to Fadel? I have interviewed Jason, Kate and Fadel so oh, I there will you go. link those episodes in the show notes and I've had contact with Stephanie but she's been incredibly busy so I will try and see if perhaps her schedule is looking to free up at any point in the next six months to talk. Well, I'm, I'm going to see her next week, so I'll ask her on your behalf. Oh, could you ask her? Yes. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for your time That's and expertise. Right, if you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.